we all feel better. In the dark, better. We all feel better. In the dark. Kick your ass! And say, since he's my friend, I'll have to kick your ass too. You so know? First, you give us this stupid Poughkeepsie yeah, tapes I mean, you know, bullshit ripoff. Because he's my boy. Yeah. 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 Check it. Let me tell you about these two dudes from Brooklyn. You won't view movies the same way again. Every two weeks you get something new and hate it or love it, they break it down for you. Tom DJ and Derek Ferguson been writing for years, got respect from the peers. Watch these movies for all benefit. Don't watch it Halloween, love Tom rather spit. How about a couple musicals or maybe Dennis Quaid? But Tom's on a rant, directors be afraid. Episodes classic, don't get it twisted. And from the start, these two have been gifted. Tom loves Kristen and Derek loves Pam. Tom hates heroes and Derek can't stand. Remakes some movies that don't need remade. Watch out studios, they won't be played. So give it up for T and give it up for D. Coolest guys from Brooklyn, this side of Jay-Z. My name's B hyphen and it's time to stop. Cause we all feel better, better, better in the dark. That's an actual song by a band called The Sprites. No fooling. Called, big surprise, George Romero. I will have to look that song up and download it. And in case you haven't figured it out because you downloaded it from the Earth2.net site or from iTunes, this is another episode of Better in the Dark. Featuring my good friend, Thomas DJ. And my brother from another mother, Mr. Derek Ferguson. And as always, we're here to hopefully entertain, inform, and possibly to delete. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> you know how we always talk about on these episodes that the people should always sign up on our message boards and participate in them because sometimes you get to suggest episodes. We say it all the time, and this episode that we're doing today, as well as the one that we just got through recording mm-hmm. a little while ago, because we're recording this one Friday the 11th, right. you'll be listening to this in January sometime. That episode was a director's court episode. Right. Or Kevin Smith, that suggestion came out of the fact that we had did a Quentin Tarantino's director's mm-hmm. court, and people enjoyed it so much, they said, you right. guys got to do another one. That's how this one came about. Somebody said, you know, it would be really cool. You did the zombie films of George Romero, which you can go and, well, hopefully by this time the archives will be up at earth2.net, but if you can't find them, you can go to bitd.lipson.com. I've been keeping that as a backup archive. And look for, I think this was episode number five, I think. Yeah, that was one of our earliest episodes that we did. Mm-hmm. Before Which, we knew what the hell we were doing. Where we covered the, <laughs> the George Romero zombie series and yeah. the various remakes. Mm-hmm. Which can get a little confusing at times. Yeah. I know it confused me. <laughs> and since last we talked, 
There have been, I think, three other remakes of Romero f- zombie films. Mm-hmm. There have been two different new versions of Night of the Living Dead alone. Somebody had suggested on our board, I think it was James, yeah. that he would like to hear us talk about some George Romero films that weren't, that weren't the zombie, zombie films. Because believe it or not, folks, and of course, you guys out there who are longtime fans of mm-hmm. Romero, like me and Tom, or is it Tom and I, well, whatever, will know that George Romero has done a considerable right. body of work outside of his zombie movies. He's not just all about zombies. Right, I mean, unfortunately, nowadays it seems like that's all he's interested in. But there was a period of time when he was doing a whole wide range. Well, that's not his fault, because yeah. let's be upfront about this and honest. The other movies he made were not as commercially successful as mm-hmm. the zombie movies. They may have been critically successful. I know that Monkey Shines right. was very well received by the critics, even though I think yeah. it's as dumb as a bucket of horse shit. <laughs> you know, and a couple of his Night Riders, yes. with one of my personal favorites. Which we're going to talk about at some length. That was very well received, mm-hmm. and it's become a sort of minor cult classic, but again, didn't go anywhere at the box office. Martin. Martin, yes. Another one that was a critical... We're not talking about bad movies here. And to be fair, you can kind of understand how... We have his IMDb page with the list of films that he's directed. Pulled up on the ever-amazing Wonder, Wonder Box. And you can definitely see that there's a big honking gap between the Dark Half, which was his last right, studio, studio oh, right. film. The adaptation of the Stephen King of novel. The Stephen King novel. That was done in 1993. The next film he managed to get done was Bruiser, which actually only made it out to direct-to-video. And that came out in 2000. And then there's another five-year gap between Bruiser and Land of the Dead, which was, of course, the big dimension return to the zombie. So you can kind of understand why he's decided, you know what, I'm just going to do zombie pictures from now yeah, on. Yeah, the guy's getting older. He's been making movies since the 60s. I imagine he must be comfortably in his 70s by mm-hmm. now. Yeah. And, and the reality is, is that he's got something about his old age, and he's got to right. sock some money away for when he gets old. To be fair, at least he's doing his own work and not portioning his past off to other people to rape. Right. <sighs> I'm looking at you, John Carpenter. <laughs> what we're going to do today, this we is gonna, not a comprehensive... We're going to yank his ass in front of the director's court. Well, I think he's, he's either yeah, get, next or he's either third yeah, or fourth on the docket. And give him a going Oh, over. yeah. <laughs> so this is not a comprehensive discussion of every non-zombie film George Romero's done. We've picked a couple of them to talk about. Yeah, that we've discussed private conversations that we went back and yeah. forth about. That, now, you know, if... We're going to, you are interested in a really comprehensive look at the career of George Romero. Oh, yeah, tell them. Go to the, our sponsors at earth2.net and click on the Dread Media archives and download episode 51 of Des Reddick's amazing podcast, Dread Media. In that episode, he spends two and a half hours dissecting the entire canon of George Romero. This is a good friend, Brother D. Trust us, it's well yeah, worth the time. Very well if worth If you the want time. a comprehensive yeah. examination of Romero's And right off the bat, we should also say there are three films that we could discuss here that we're holding off on discussing. Another thing that the board has talked about is they want to hear us to talk about some of the great anthology films. Right. So, Two Evil Eyes... Creep Show. Creep Show and Tales of the Dark Side, the movie, will not be discussed we're not in this episode. Because we're saving that for right. the anthology. 
episode. But we are going to discuss a couple of films. Where we the anthology episode is one, because we're still mapping it out, because right. we want to do the amicus. We want to do amicus as his own thing, and we want to do the other ones that, yeah. So we're kind of working out the logistics, yeah. folks, on how best to do this anthology thing, because both Tom and I are big fans of the amicus. The uh, yes. Oh, we love the amicus. Well, you know me, I've been very clear about my love of the Rivals of Hammer. You're right, yeah. Amicus and Tygun and right. the, uh, British Line and all the other ones, so... so. That's coming. Do we want to go chronologically? Yeah, let's go chronologically. The first one we're going to talk about today is the film that was his follow-up from Night of the Living Dead, which was, of course, The Crazies. Ah, yeah. He was a kind of sort of a work-for-hire director on that one. A producer that he had worked with before come to him with the script and said, would you like to do this? Mm -hmm. And he agreed to do it. And it's about to be... Remade. remade, and yeah. it actually looks pretty damn good. Yeah, have you seen the poster? Yes. It's like, help us, yeah, right. put it sprayed on the sign going to the town. get a couple of comedies mm-hmm. in between Night of the Living. This is his return to horror. This is his follow-up. Right. This is the one where the town goes yeah. book fuck. It's some kind of biological There is a biological agent, yes. agent that's gotten loose. A biological agent codenamed Trixie, which, Trixie, was, a, right. which was an alternate which name. Which was an alternate name for the movie. Yeah. Is released into a small town in Pennsylvania, and it, they're, they're like two parallel storylines. You got on one hand, you've got the military presence trying to contain the outbreak, and right. on the other side, you've got a small group of survivors mm-hmm. who are trying their best to get out of the quarantine zone. It's a movie that I like to say was Stephen King before Stephen King came mm-hmm. along, because I'm pretty sure he's seen it because he's a big. George Romero fan, at which evidence that eventually they got to work together on right. Peep Show. First time I saw it, I said, oh yeah, well this is plays just like a Stephen King story. This features, by the way, in my opinion, one of the most bizarre and uncomfortable scenes I've ever watched in a George Romero film. One of the, the people that are trying to escape are a father and daughter. Oh my god! Yes! Um, oh. The daughter being played by the absolutely gorgeous Lynn Lowry. Yeah. Only appeared in, I think, like six films during the 70s and then dropped out of the business without mm. a trace. At one point where the father is very, very, very affected by the virus, he tries to actually rape his daughter. Yeah, well, yeah. And it's just... But the way it's played for a movie that's supposed to be a horror-slash-fantasy-type movie, it's played with uncomfortable realism. Yeah. And you get the impression that even if the father hadn't been affected by the biological age, yeah. he might have done this at some point. You definitely get the impression that there was some sort of attraction there that the yeah. father was just like repressing yeah. prior to being exposed to the exactly. agent. One of the things I think that marks this early period is because he's a documentary filmmaker, this is where his roots were. In fact, he was still making documentaries as he was making these films because he made a... Uh, couple of sports documentaries, including a documentary on O.J. Simpson called Juice on the Loose. I've seen that, yeah. And as a matter of fact, it could be said mm-hmm. that George Romero, being a documentary filmmaker, he was the guy that ushered in that style of, mm-hmm. this is why we've got movies today like Paranormal right. Activity and The Blair Witch Project. Right. Those, Those are logical extensions. Extensions of what Romero was doing back then when he put right. the documentary style, like, of course, the original Night of the Living Dead. A lot of yeah. it was filmed in very documentary-like style. It was the combination of that and also, I think, the fact that it was a very grainy film stock that yeah. really drove home the realism of that film. Exactly, which gave it that realistic feel that you are there. Right. For lack of a better phrase. And I think that carries over into the crazies. Yeah, because it's filmed in a very, very matter-of-fact mm-hmm. style, not bombastic at all. There's also, for example, the Lynn Lowry character eventually ends up being killed by the military. Yeah. Instead of giving us a big squib and blood flowing everywhere, mm-hmm. 
we see the gunshot, we see Gwen Flowery's face, when she slowly realizes what happened, and she just goes, oh, and drops And just drops, right. Which is, I think, very powerful. The other powerful scene is the male lead finally realizing that his fiance has gone. Mm-hmm. And basically walling her up alive. Oh, yeah. And just saying, I'll be right back. I'll be right I'll back, back. I'm coming back, honey. But yeah, it seems like that that remind us of what a powerful filmmaker George Romero yes. can be. Now, we're talking about a guy that was at the top of his game mm-hmm. right here. He is a powerful filmmaker. Make no mistake about it. The horror films up until he came along have been very bombastic things with all thunder and lightning. And here he presents us with two horror films, Night of the Living Dead and the crazies that happen in rural settings with ordinary people doing the most horrendous things to each other and presenting it in just a matter of fact. He puts the camera in and says, this is what's happening. This is not the ultimate extension of his documentary phase, let's put it. Right. Because that comes with Martin. This is still some really powerful stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, And it's not resolved. This is the other thing that's great about Romero, (laughs) is that Romero doesn't tie everything up in a neat bow. Exactly. Later on, when he becomes more polished... When he's doing films like Monkey Shines and The Dark Half, which are tied up in a neat bow at the end, there's something lacking. Because in this film, there's no resolution. Right. The head of the military operation gets notice that he's being pulled out because there's another outbreak. There's another outbreak. So, yeah. So he goes in that really, and this was apparently the thing that caused him the most problems with the locals when he was filming the film. Because remember at the end of the film, who's a black man, Mm -hmm. the head of the military goes out into the field, strips down gets into his army fatigues and is lifted out by a helicopter. Yeah. It wasn't the violence, the stomach setting himself on fire in the one sequence, mm-hmm. or the people being shot and killed. <laughs> it was the fact there was a naked black man in the movie well, that he, caused yeah. the locals to get upset. Yeah, exactly. Now, the near-rape scene with the father-rapes yeah. the doesn't bother them. It doesn't bother them, But yeah. a naked black man, everybody freaks out. It's a slow film, but that's what a lot of... Sub- I think that there are a lot of people who are used to the filmmaking of today. Exactly. That's where everything is cut, 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 cut. Here, there's a cut. Look at that. Look at yeah, that. Exactly. There's a cut every seven seconds. They're not used to movies back then where they held the scene for yeah. seven minutes. Frequently in this film, seven minutes. Romero just sits his camera down and lets people act in front of it. That's the type of movie it is. Not every movie calls for a cut every seven seconds. Mm-hmm. Movies back then... The directors knew how to hold the scene and just let the actors act. And I think also it benefits from the fact that with the biggest name in that film is Lynn Lowry. You're right. Some of these actors are people that Romero will come back to work with again and again and again. Mm-hmm. But because they're mainly unfamiliar faces to us, it also continues to emphasize the realism well, that's, of this scenario. That's another thing that I liked about Romero's films. Whenever I went to see them, these were people I'd never seen before. Even Knight Riders. Okay, Ed Harris was an unknown when he right. did that movie. And it's really funny that when I went to see that movie, Tom Savini, I recognized him right. before I didn't recognize Ed Harris. <laughs> and Tom Savini, hardly anybody knew who he right. was because he was a special effects guy. He didn't act. We'll get to Knight Riders right after we get deal with the next yeah. film, which of course is Martin. It's Martin. Which is the bleakest freaking movie. Oh. I have not watched that movie in a very long time until I watched it recently for this episode. And I forgot how freaking (laughs) mind-numbingly depressing it is. And this is not a critique on how bad or good that film is, but Mm -hmm. it's just so down. It's a downbeat, very much a downbeat movie. It couldn't get made today. No, no. I don't think it could. It couldn't get made today. It could not get made today. The whole idea of the main character loses his virginity to a suicidal housewife. Yes. 
first we should mention that ostensibly it's a vampire movie, but yeah. there's considerable... Romero never said one way or the other if this is actually... There's considerable evidence yeah. that he's not a vampire. Right. The whole movie just made the delusion in his yeah. mind, a paranoid fantasy that he's having. The only definitive statement I've ever gotten about that is from the commentary track that Romero recorded for the uh, Blue Underground edition, where he stated that his belief when he wrote the film was that that whole family was just fucked up. It was just crazy, you're right. Yeah. And had that irrational belief about one of their members always being vampiric. Right. Because you've and, got the uncle or yeah. the grandfather that's trying to kill him the all throughout the yeah, he's living with. Trying, right, who's a priest, a devout yeah. priest, and is trying to kill mm-hmm. him all throughout the movie. And the idea was that he had grown up in such a toxic household yeah. that he came to believe the mania of his family. And that was why we had those frequent insets in black and the white. black and white inserts, yeah. Of how Martin's story would have gone down if it was a movie. And not this very realistic, very downbeat. Mm-hmm. And it shows this Pennsylvania town that was literally falling apart before our eyes. <laughs> Savini, who has a fairly meaty role in this film. Right, yeah. He's constantly talking about he can't get any work here because all the mills are closing down. and mm-hmm. It's just such a dark, Which dark a, film. Dates with a lot of Pennsylvania yeah. towns back during that time. And it's also yeah. interesting that there's no real violence in this film. At the very beginning, we see Martin kill and feed, if you will, mm-hmm. off of a woman on the train. On the train, right. And then that's it. For about an hour For a change. long time, yeah. It's more of a psychological family mm-hmm. drama, really, than a vampire right. movie. If you look at it from that angle, it really is about this dysfunctional family. And there's a cycle of madness that yeah. keeps running through this family. And also about this young man who has no outlet, no way to communicate with the rest of the world. That's what adds to the bleakness and the depression, yeah. because there's absolutely no hope for this character whatsoever. Yeah. There's no way he's going to get out of it. There's only because two ways just, he has an outlet. There he only, simply doesn't have the yeah. social skills to even conceive of a way right. of getting out of this. There are only two outlets that he has that he can communicate how he really feels. Mm. The overnight radio show, okay. wh- who, who's treating him like some average ordinary <laughs> nut, calling him Count Dracula, <laughs> and this housewife, housewife. he has that sexual affair with, and she's got her own fucked well, up world she's living well, in. Well, apparently, yeah. And I also love the fact that even though, towards the end of the film, he goes out and commits another murder, but goes out of his way to follow the rules that his uncle put down. You don't feed on anybody I know. If I find you doing that, I will kill I you. I will kill you. So he goes out and goes to the wrong side of the tracks mm. and kills and feeds off of a homeless man. But he gets killed because of the girl he's been sleeping with commits suicide, mm-hmm. and the uncle thinks that he's been that trying he to killed, cover it up. Yeah. And the ending where Martin meets his end, and we hear nothing but the radio show going, "Where are you, Count?" Yeah. <laughs> A downer. And like The Crazies. The Crazies was a critical success, mm-hmm. and so was Martin. Critics loved the movie. Nobody went to see it. For a long time, if you remember, it was a cult, a, a cult midnight, midnight movie. cult midnight movie. And you got to give credit to John Applis. I don't know if he's ever done anything since. The guy who played Martin. He has very little dialogue. Mm-hmm. He is playing someone who is almost subverbal. Look in his eyes. His yeah. eyes are screaming. He can't. But his eyes are screaming. And also some mention should be made of Christine Forrest, who mm-hmm. plays the cousin, who eventually leaves oh, the yeah. town with Tom Savini. Yeah. That girl went on 
to marry George Romero. Married the boss. Yes, she did, and I think she's oh. still married to him to this day. Always a good way to get ahead in the world. Just it's, ask Kate Capshaw. I would call <laughs> Martin one of those handful of films like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer where you should see it once, but I guarantee you after you see it that one time, you will never want to see it again. Yeah. Not because it's bad, not because it's yeah, terrible. Yeah, not because, because... Right, because it's just one of the movies I've seen Martin twice. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a good movie, and I would recommend it to anybody, but it's not a movie I'm in a burning need to see again, and I probably won't see it again, like Requiem for a Dream. That's right. a movie that I will never watch again. That shit freaked me out so bad I couldn't sleep right. What else? Henry Portrait of Serial Killer, right. like you said, that's a movie, yeah. I couldn't sit, no, that's one of a handful of movies, yeah. I have no desire to sit through it. You know, it's definitely a film that, especially if you're interested in the, the horror genre, you need to see. Yeah. And if you're interested in good, good, good filmmaking... Good way of putting it. You need to see, because this is a real tour de force on Romero's behalf. This guy knows how to move this story. But I guarantee you, I don't know if you want to come back to see it again. Yeah. Especially if you call yourself a horror director and you right. want to direct horror. Or even if you just want to write horror, sit down and watch Martin. It's not all about slashers and... Decapitations and god awful fancy uh, Rube Goldberg uh, well, death traps. It's like what you and I talked about in the Halloween show, where most people consider horror to be a condition. How people die, how people are tortured, how people suffer. Mm-hmm. When what Romero understands in The Crazies, and even in the Living Dead films, mm-hmm. in this film, horror is an emotion. It's a state of mind. It's a state of mind. The horror that Martin must be feeling being so cut off Oh yeah, yeah. from anything resembling a normal life, where he actively considers that this relationship he has with this fucked up woman mm-hmm. who keeps telling him how she just wants to die is normal. Some of the most frightening movies I've ever seen don't have any blood in them mm-hmm. at all. But it's just what is going on in the characters' minds and the situations that they're in. And yeah. as we've said other times, one of our favorite movies that we were discussing, The Mist. The real horror is what's happening inside. Yeah. Them, not the creatures outside. It's what these people are doing to each other while they're trapped inside. Well, this, definitely, this film definitely fits into the Romero remit that he presents in the Living Dead films, which is that given an extraordinary circumstance... The humans will fuck it up for themselves. Every time. (laughs) And in this case, every single time. There are many ways that Martin could have tried to escape from this, but because he had no tools for which to find these ways. Exactly. He's trapped and he's fated to be destroyed. And that's the real horror. That right there, what you just said, that's the core of the horror of the movie. I would recommend that to anybody. It wouldn't be the first movie I would give to somebody who had never seen Romero right. before. That would have to be one of the zombie movies, right. of course. But once somebody had been indoctrinated into Romero's filmmaking style, then I said, okay, we'll try right. this one. And from here we go to probably the most unusual film on his Sylvia. Mm-hmm. But one of your favorite films, Night Riders. Yeah, because of that reason. It was so totally unlike anything he had done previously. Mm-hmm. Up until then. And this movie took a lot of heat from his fans, his zombie fans. Because what the fuck is this? Yeah, yeah, what the hell are you doing? This film was obviously made for him. For him, right. This This is a a personal movie. He said, no, I'm doing this for me. This was a story he must have had burning inside him for years. Yeah. Because 
I can understand how it must have been totally alien to the film-going audience of 1981. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Shall we try to summarize this film? Because this is probably the one that least seen of the Romero films. Okay, it's loosely based on the Arthurian myth. Right. The myth of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Ed Harris right. as the King Arthur character. Billy. He's named Billy, okay. Right. He's the king of this traveling troop. They're kind of like medievalists. Right. Like the guys you see at the Renaissance Ren- fairs. Yeah. And they put on these elaborate jousts. They, they, travel, they, they travel from they town, travel to town. town to town with this Renaissance oh, fair. fair. Right. But they put on these elaborate jousts where they put on these heavy suits of armor, mm-hmm. actual armor, and they have the jousts on motorcycles. Right. They're bashing each other around, and Tom Savini right. plays one of his knights, who is Morgan. Morgan, who is the Mordred character. And it's funny because at one point, the character who, in the very early in the film, Julie, who's played by an actress that we'll see again and again and again in Romero's films, Patricia Tallman. Oh, yeah. She hooks up with Alan, played by Gary Latte. Mm-hmm. And one of the other writers explains to her that Morgan didn't realize that the name that he chose for his stage name mm-hmm. was really belonged to a woman. Oh, yeah, Morgan. You know, right. yeah. I can't imagine how George Romero thought that this picture was going to fly when yeah. it got into theaters. It was so unlike anything he'd ever did before. And the subject matter for people... Who went to see it Because he talks about The commercialism There's a little group That's headed by Tom Savini right. Who wants to make money They want to make like money that. And in fact This is a very Personal thing to Billy At one point A child comes up to him With a article That mm-hmm. appeared about him In a magazine He says Oh I'm, you're my hero mm-hmm. Could you sign this And he refuses Because he's like I don't do this that. Yeah, this is not entertainment. To him, this is actually right. a holy calling. But Tom Savini, he wants to make money. And actually, Billy has been approached by this company that wants to have Night Rider yeah. t-shirts and they want to do Night Rider and they TV want to specials. Do like this, and they, they, want, they want to bring it to Vegas. To Vegas. Vegas show. Right. And he doesn't want to do it. But the Tom Savini character, he goes, because there's one seat that crashes you. He even does like a Playgirl shoot yes. where he's in a partial yeah. suits of armor with mm-hmm. his junk hanging. Yeah. <laughs> But he's getting paid, right. though. The group splits. Yeah. So you have Morgan and his followers hooking up with this publicist who's trying to get them to go to, to Vegas. To Vegas. Which is where that ridiculous spread comes from. Yeah. <laughs> While Billy is still following, he has these dreams about this and vision quest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Billy starts getting a little weird. He's been weird all through the movie, yeah. but this is where he really starts to get a little bit weirder. There's the character who goes by the name of Merlin, mm-hmm. yeah. who turns out is a real doctor. He explains, I get to go travel, I get to see new things, and this Indian kid, and of course the Guinevere character, Lynette, are all kind of like keeping an eye on Billy because they're afraid that Billy is just going to go, Woo-hoo. Cuckoo. yeah, so what if... Eventually, Morgan comes back. He comes back because he gets dissatisfied. He's yeah. got everything now. He's got the girls. He's got the money. Mm-hmm. He's got the coke. He's got right. the booze. He's got the limo. He's got everything. He's got a big, new, shiny, flashy motorcycle. But, of course, he realizes that he's given up his soul. Although, and I gotta say, and without those Bill- motorcycles, the Vegas motorcycles, are yeah, pretty yeah, goofy yeah. looking. Yeah. Yeah, they are. <laughs> with, the, yeah. with those obvious foam piping on the yeah, front. Yeah, yeah, they are some... But let me put it this way. The bikes that they had before yeah. may have been old and they may have been clunky, but they look like machines that right. were ready for war. He realizes that, of course, without Billy's vision, he has mm-hmm. no soul. Right. So he wants to come so back. So he goes and yeah. he offers to have an all-or-nothing joust with right. Billy. And he ends up... And this is another film that could never be made today. Mm-hmm. Because Billy loses. Yeah. 
Billy, honest to gosh, loses. He gets hurt pretty bad. But he honors the agreement. Yes, he does. And steps down and leaves the troop. And leaves the troop, yeah. Which then ushers in one of the stranger 20 minutes I've ever seen. Where he goes off, followed by the Indian kid. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On his little quest. He goes walkabout. He goes and he visits this sheriff who had hurt one of his men Mm -hmm. earlier in the picture. And beats the living shit out of him. He's in the gas station to drive. Yeah, he's traveling around wearing his arm and everything. Then goes and visits the kid and just basically stares at him. And I think there's, it's very ambiguous about whether it's an it, actual he, accident or yeah. he consciously kills himself. Yeah. It's left up to your own personal right. interpretation as to what happens. And, of course, we have Morgan you, who is left with all of this, mm-hmm. but he's empty. He's a shell right. now. You know, he has no vision. But he has you get no the, dream. He has nothing. But you get the impression at the end of the film, at the, the funeral, that while Morgan is not going to be the same as Billy, he's going to be inspired by Billy to rededicate himself in some way so that what emerges from this Knight Rider's troop is not going to be what he wants, but it's going to be close to what Billy wants. It's never going to be the same as what Billy... And it's not going to be the same as what he wants. What it's going to be... I don't even think he knows himself what it's going to be because he was the catalyst for change. Was the change good or was the change bad? We don't know because we don't follow the troop after the end of this movie. But one of the things that I love about Romero's movie is that, and he's kind of like Spike Lee in this thing, that he doesn't believe in tying up everything neatly, and you believe that these people are going to have a life outside of this movie, Mm -hmm. and after it's over, there's always that feeling in Romero's movies that even after it's over, it's going to go on. We're just not going to see what's happening. These people are going to continue to live their lives. It's worth mentioning that this movie also probably showed the beginnings of the collaboration between him and Stephen King. Yes, because he shows up. At this point... Stephen King has an extended cameo. And it just goes to prove that Stephen King as an actor Mm. is a really good writer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he plays like a drunk redneck mm-hmm. sitting by the side. He's, I don't well, know, he's doing kind of comic like, relief. Yeah. Doing some kind of, yeah. Very bad comic relief, yeah. I might add. <laughs> but if you do see the movie, folks, it's worth watching out for the Stephen King right. cameo. He's wearing big honking glasses, too, mm-hmm. like it's Idol Romero. So, yeah, it's worth looking for him. It's a strange movie. And, but and you got to give him a load of credit for actually getting it done. And I have no idea why I like this movie. And they used to show it a lot on cable. It used to come along, mm-hmm. which is where I discovered it. Right. And every time that damn thing came on, I watched it. And I finally I went out and I bought the VHS tape. Right. And I would watch that at least once or twice a year. I haven't been able to find it on DVD. I'm pretty sure. It is out on DVD. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. I just I am pretty little independent. It's also, it's, it's another one of the uh, Blue Underground release. I probably have to go someplace like FYE or Best Buy, someplace like that to find it. It's so unlike anything that Romero has ever done. It's a personal movie yet. I don't believe that he ever thought he was going to make a dime on it. Mm-hmm. But I think it was just enough for him to get it out there. The next couple of films we're going to be talking about are much slicker packages. Yeah. And I wonder if the failure of Knight Riders contributed to him deciding, well, maybe I should go off and be more like other movies. And before we go on, I just want to say also, this is probably the only movie where you're going to see Tom Savini have such an extended part as an actor, and he's pretty damn good. It wasn't just 
special effects for him. He always wanted to be an actor. He always wanted to direct. Because Romero is a very loyal person, he got the chance to do both. No, but I would love to have seen him do, if he had ever decided to do, like, acting career. Yeah. And I believe he would have been good in it. A remake of Have Gun, Will Travel. Because he's got that Richard Boone yeah. kind of thing where he looks like a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Even when he's playing a good guy, he's got that kind of well, same kind of eyes. vibe. Yeah, he's got the same kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. And I really wish that he had went on to have more substantial movie roles because he was really good in this one. After Knight Rider, we got Creepshow, which is actually probably the last of the original look Romero films, although he did try to do a lot of camera tricks to make things look very comic booky. Not to go too deep into it because like we right, said, we're going to do it, but this is probably one of the last theatrical movie anthologies that we're ever going to see. Yeah. One of the last, if not, no, there was a Creepshow 2. There was a Creepshow 2, yeah. there was Tales of the Dark Side of the movie, there was... Grim Prairie Tale. Yeah. Every once in a while, somebody comes out with one. Yeah, they try to do it. Yeah, yeah, although I find it very interesting that the most recent attempt to do the anthology, which I was dying to see in the theaters, never got to the theaters, which was Trick or Treat. I want to see that because I heard yeah. very good things about that. The next one we, we are going to talk about is mm-hmm. the one you refer to as a bag of stupid <laughs> earlier. And i got to be honest, I can't quite fault you on that. <laughs> Monkey Shines. I have heard many a goofy premise for a horror mm-hmm. movie. And when I heard this one, I said, oh no, he did. He, he's not honestly going to do this, is he? And yep, George Romero went ahead and did it. And the funny thing is, it's based on an actual book, which was popular. Monkey Shines is a story of Alan Mann, played by Jason Begg, gets into a catastrophic accident. And we see he's a pretty athletic yeah. guy. At the beginning of the movie, he's jogging. And I think he's, he's a training for, for, he's a marathon. for marathon. Exactly. He gets hit by a truck. It happens while he's jogging. And he ends up paralyzed from the neck down. From the neck down. Yeah. And his life goes to shit. His fiance, played by Janine Turner, leaves him. Yeah, she leaves him. He is saddled, thanks to his overbearing mother, played by George Van Patten, with this horrible shrew of a nurse played oh, by Mrs. George Romero. But however, one of the few bright spots in his life is his best his friend, best friend. Jeffrey, played by John Pankow many years before he became Ira on Mad About You. Yeah. When I saw this again recently, that was the first thing I thought about. Because he's got a full head of hair in yeah. this one. <laughs> but he's a scientist. Yes, in this he's one. a chemist right. working to increase uh, uh, smart drugs. Right. And he's working with monkeys. Capuchin. Capuchin monkeys. Capuchin monkeys. Decides. Little cute ones. Because he's really disgusted with the way that this nurse treats Alan. And also, he's under a lot of pressure from, of all people, Stephen Root. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Who looks like a baby in this. Yes. To produce. So he decides. Results. He wants results. Because he's been investing in this experiment. So he decides to take his best subject, Ella. Give the monkey to Melanie, who runs a program that trains helper monkeys. Give it to her to train Ella to be Alan's helper monkey. One of the most fascinating elements about this movie is that back at that right. time, this was an actual program mm-hmm. where they were training they monkeys. They mentioned that as a, be- as yeah. a title card at the beginning of the film, that this was based on a real program. Right. Ella, who is played by a capuchin monkey named Boo becomes Alan's helper, and they bond really quickly. Of course, Ella being kind of copped up on John Pankow's goofy juice, (laughs) begins to decide that she doesn't just like Alan, she she loves loves Alan. Alan. 
And as we've already established many times on Better in the Dark, it's okay to love your pets. It's not okay to love your pets. <laughs> so Ella decides she's going to take some revenge. But she's a pretty smart monkey. Yeah. Until he tells her to go get the food. She opens right. up the refrigerator. She goes, she scrambles the eggs. She holds mm-hmm. books for him right. while he's reading. She pulls out his flower and he's got to right. go to the bathroom. She's a pretty oh, smart monkey. I didn't see that part of the movie. She's I'm a, sorry. Oh, well, I was probably drinking goofy juice at the time, too. So, hey, who knows? But apparently... The smart juice is working, yeah. because she can do things that monkeys can't. And the other thing, that, and this is where the script gets kind of hazy for me, where it starts losing some of the good credit got at the very the beginning. The good sense. <laughs> right. We also discover that the goofy juice has somehow allowed Ella to mentally hook yeah. up with Alan. Yeah. So Alan is getting these dreams when Ella's going out in her little midnight rambles. Stories. Which eventually ends up with first her taking revenge on Alan's ex-fiance, who's taken up with his doctor. It's kind of inferred that Ella is picking up on the subconscious rage yeah. that he has against his fiance mm-hmm. leaving him, and she's acting it out. And the double rage of the fact that he discovers, because him and Melanie become romantically involved, right. they go to another doctor, and it turns out that that Dr. Weissman, the doctor who did the initial operations on him, played by a Volpe, another person we didn't expect to see, Stanley Tucci, yes, who Stanley also Tucci. looks like a baby. And who also has a full head of hair. Yep. And there's even a little hint that he may have botched the operation. Yes, that's the thing. So it's, it's he may have botched it. And since he's dating Janine Turner's character, mm-hmm. there's that double rage. So Ella decides to go out and find their cabin where they're yeah. hanging out in the woods and burn the place down. I have to give... The cast of this movie, nothing but total respect and credit, because they play this shit with a straight face. Oh, <laughs> like they're taking this—it's a rampaging monkey for Christ's yes. sake! It's a, oh, the last <laughs> twenty minutes of this film. There's one point she's holding a razor blade yeah. to the guy, going, she's, right? Yes, and she's and she's saying, in "Monkey, you cheated on me, you son of a bitch." <laughs> Oh my god! There are so many sort of unintentionally hilarious moments in this film. The quote-unquote love scene between Melanie and Alan is meant to be very tender, but just looks kind of weird. There's a similar scene in Jane Fonda movie, Coming Home, where Mm -hmm. it's a quadriplegic at a point. They show in pretty graphic terms how she makes love. This scene is nothing like that one there. There's... The scenes of John Pankow chasing after the monkey with several syringes of sedative and falling on top of them and dying. The funniest moment of all, of course, is at the, towards the very end where there's Alan yelling at Ella who's taken a box of matches to an unconscious Melanie and is trying to light her hair on fire. Yeah, yeah. I figured that the producers, after seeing the success of the zombie movie, yeah. said, okay, well, it's George Romero. We can sell the movie on the strength of George And I give Romero credit, too. He plays the material straight. Yeah. And also, let's be honest, to be fair, this book that this film was based on was a bestseller. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. So it's not like... Which shows you folks, I guess, a lot about the reading habits of people back (laughs) when this movie was made. But it is an inherently goofy, goofy, goofy film. But again... The critics love this movie. I remember mm. reading a bunch of good reviews about it in our research for this. I look back. This movie was critically well received. I don't know what the critics were drinking or smoking back then. Because I can't look at this movie without laughing. Yeah. My ass off. I'm sorry. As, I mean, well, as ridiculous as this sounds, 
the monkey gives a good performance. <laughs> it's not that monkey's fault that it's asked to do some things that look inherently ridiculous. Let's not talk about Mighty Joe Young here. Yeah. It's a monkey. Right. <laughs> it's not even a chimpanzee like the one that tore off that poor woman's yeah. face. We're not talking about that. It's maybe like a foot high. Right, yes. If that, give me, oh my God. And for that matter, I would have <coughs> to say the next one we're going to talk about is not one of his highlights. Which one is that? The Dark Half. Oh, okay. With uh, Timothy... Timothy Hutton, isn't Yep. It? I think this is like the closest thing he had to a big, major budget film. The story goes that Stephen King, who, of mm-hmm. course, by this time, was a very big deal. He's like a 500-pound gorilla. Yeah. He insisted that the studio hire Romero mm-hmm. to direct this one. So Romero has him to thank for this job. King and Romero had to come close to adapt. In fact, one of these projects that, unfortunately, we will never see, but I would die to know what it would look like, was, of course, the George Romero version of The Stand. Oh, yeah, because that one time he was mm-hmm. attached to it. As a matter of fact, it was even planned that it was going to be two movies. They were going to film it back-to-back, and they were going to release one one year and end it mm-hmm. on a cliffhanger, and then next summer it was going to come out. This, mind you, was years before Peter right. Jackson thought of the same thing with Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. So, again, Romero was an innovator even back then. And this is a pretty... Tony cast for a George Romero film because you've got Timothy Hutton, you've got Michael Rooker, Julie Harris, big name stars. Michael Rooker was coming off of Henry at this yeah. time. So but his name was on people's lips. Mm-hmm. The story is about Thad Beaumont, who is a, a writer. A writer. Now, as a young boy, he was having these horrible, horrible migraine headaches. Right. And they assumed it was a tumor in his skull. It turns out it was a unformed twin. Uh, uh, it was a fetus. Yeah. Because I remember reading the book, and in mm-hmm. the book, they described that the operation that they do to remove it from his brain. Right. And the doctor's horrified because as he's cutting into the skull, he opens it up. Right. First he finds teeth, and then he mm-hmm. finds an eyeball that's right. looking back at him, and he's like, holy shit! Yeah. <laughs> so they remove it, and he ends up becoming this very successful literary writer. However, his real true success is not from writing all these wonderful literary collegiate romance books. Right. But from writing these really violent... Dark, disturbing crime crime thrillers. Under the name George Stark. Stark. And you could tell that this story grew out of King's own feelings about his being trapped by his, yeah. Richard Bachman. Right. Because he had this Richard Bachman character who he considered to be a separate writer. Right. And he said he created him because whenever, as Stephen King, he had a writer's block, go to bed, get the next day, and he'd be Richard Bachman, right. and then he could write. He wrote four I think before four, it came yeah. out. It came there out four, over Stephen King, yeah. And then, of course, he wrote one more, but by that time, post the revelation. He wrote like two or three, because I know he I wrote got, four. I got um, one because I got The Long Walk. The Long Walk. Thinner. The Running Man, the running was, man. was a Bachman when he was still high. was a Bachman. There was one about a student with Lee. Rage. Who held his classroom yeah. Yeah, hostage? That was supposed to be turned into a movie, but then we had that whole right. crazy period where there were kids doing it cut right, and that was squashed that real right. quick. <laughs> so apparently, that, what happens is that George Stark becomes a real person because he decides to kill to kill George. Him off. He doesn't like writing those books. His wife doesn't like him writing this book because she claims that he's another person. Another person. We kind of see evidence of that because their handwriting is different. So they decide as a publicity stunt, they're going to kill George Stark off. Right. So they make this big publicity where they have him burying... They go to the graveyard. Right. They even have a tombstone right. made up. George Stark, born such and such, died such and such, and they have a symbolic funeral. And then George Stark comes back. 
also played by Hutton, has this kind of, what would happen if Bill Paxton and Elvis had a baby? That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> exactly right, yeah. George wants his life, life back. back. George says, you didn't consult me about this. And he proceeds to go on his own little right. rampage. One considerably more frightening than Ella's, I'm yes. not at. I saw this in the theater. Uh-huh. I didn't care for it, quite frankly. Neither did I. I liked the book much better. Because you know why? Because certain things... First of all, it's hard to make a movie about a writer. Yeah. Period. Me and you both being writers, we mm-hmm. know this. Even though I love movies about writers, much of what goes on with a writer is internal. The only thing that you can really show a writer is if he's having emotional problems or right. relationship problems. But the actual process of writing... You can't show it because then we'd have two hours of a guy sitting at a keyboard. Right. This method of giving the alter ego his own life mm-hmm. is a way of, yes, showing the dilemma that I think King wanted to bring out about how he felt trapped by his own success right. and, and that he couldn't go off and be Richard Bachman, that he had to do this in order right. to sell these books. It's kind of like the Beatles, because remember at the height of the thing, the Beatles said that they wished that they could just go off to right. a little club someplace and just play as the journeyman mm-hmm. of the court, right. and nobody would know who they were. They could just play music. A dilemma like that is easier to get across in a book than in a movie, because what we eventually get in the dark house, it eventually ends up degenerating into a typical slasher movie. One of the, the things that we learned the film progresses is that the longer George is out the more he's losing cohesion which yeah. is why he wants that he doesn't have the imagination so all the violence that he does is stuff that the machine which is George Stark's character mm-hmm. did in one of the books right he wants that to start a new book because he figures if he starts a new book he'll get his cohesion back throughout the film the George Stark character gets more and more mummified and yeah, messed up but what it ends up being is a bunch of silliness with birds the special effects are not very good that's from the book too because there's a phrase that keeps saying you know the starlings yeah. you know the swallows are flying so it's from the book but it plays much better when you're reading it and yeah. you can see it in your mind than when you actually see it on the screen and you say well, that doesn't make a lick of sense mm-hmm. at all. And yeah. it doesn't. I never found Hutton's portrayal of Stark very scary. Well, what they should have did, like in a later movie, Secret Window, which yeah. is virtually a remake mm-hmm. of this movie because it's the same premise. A right. writer wants to kill off his... Well, have a different actor. Right. What exactly. if Bill Paxton did play George Stark? Exactly. They had Bill Paxton play George Stark. Right. That would have played off much better. Because mm-hmm. let's face it, Timothy Hutton can't be scary. Right. <laughs> no matter how hard he's trying. He's just too much of a nice guy. It may sound flippant when I refer to him as being crossed with Elvis. But that Elvis, per- because you remember, he's got that, are you lonesome? Yeah. That, that whole thing, it's just, I just found it really lacking. Uh, I didn't see it in theater. I think I saw it later on when it was mm-hmm. either on cable. Because I said, yeah, this was one. I'm glad I didn't waste my time going to see it in the movie. Now we and have, I would not give it to anybody right. as representative of Romero's work. Now we have one more film to talk about. Okay. And I think it's one only I have seen. Which one is that? Which is, of course, Bruiser. Ah, yeah. That one I have not right. seen that. Because, as we mentioned, there was a massive gap between the dark half and Bruiser. Supposedly, there were a number of projects Romero got involved with, including, bizarrely enough, somebody had approached him to do the first Resident Evil movie that had fallen through. He did do... Wasn't Romero, even at one time, uh, considered as a director for the first Spider-Man? I don't know about that. Mm. I know that Fincher was considered... I know that him and Stan yeah. Lee are very tight, and they always mm. wanted to do something together. Right. This film was ill-starred right from the start. It ended up not being released in theaters. It had a micro-budget. <laughs> it's an interesting premise. Mm-hmm. Although, part of the problem is 
that, okay, Henry Creedlow, played by Jason Fleming, he works for a magazine called Bruiser. He's got this kind of shrew bitch of a wife who's sleeping with his boss. Okay. He's constantly put upon his best friend who keeps telling him that his investments aren't doing very well. Mm-hmm. He's always telling me he has to take control of his life. His boss, Milo Stiles, played by Peter Stormare, he does have a sort of attraction to Stormare's ex-wife, played by Leslie Hope. Okay. But he doesn't act on it. So he's constantly put upon. And then one day, after a particularly humiliating moment, where he goes to a party thrown by his boss, he finds his boss fucking his wife, takes the wife home, and the wife actively says, don't wait up, I'm going back there to fuck him some more. Oh. He wakes up with this mask. What do you mean he wakes up? He didn't knock all the teeth out? No. Because, you know, I, I'd have thrown her suitcase and said, mm-hmm. here, take your shit then, go. I'd go all George Stark on her. But, then, yeah, but this is the movie. So. Right. Okay. He wakes up with this white featureless mask permanently affixed to his face. He doesn't know how it got there. The first thing he does is he comes across his maid stealing from him. This guy just can't get a break. But here's the thing. He realized that having that mask somehow frees him up. He ends up accidentally murdering the maid. He becomes more and more aggressive. Right. He goes to the offices, finds his... With the mask on. With the mask on. Okay. Goes to the and office. it's just a blank, featureless mask. It's just mask. a blank, featureless mask. His eyes are open. His mouth is still moving. Yeah. But there's, like, no features. Okay. It's a, a very striking visual. Yeah, I can remember. He goes to the offices of the magazine. It's like a fashion magazine. And hangs his wife and throws her out the window. Good for him. And you know now we just lost 30% of our female yeah. listeners. <laughs> advocates violence toward women. Um, <laughs> and then proceeds to just go on this swath of vengeance. Good for him. There's a whole lot of symbolism. Leslie Hope's character is an artist who specializes in making these special masks. Okay. At one point he keeps adding throughout the, the point where he's like, because he finds out that his best friend has been messing money from him, so he kills him. Good for him. And he just starts adding more decorations onto the mask, the war paint. He's like, I'm finding my face. It's like a tribal thing. And it ends up at a Halloween party thrown by the magazine with music by the Misfits, where he takes a laser and blows up his boss. No shit. (laughs) I want to see this. (laughs) It's not very good, though. Well, I can fast forward through this. Part of the thing is, but why is it not good? Everybody around Henry is cardboard. His one-dimensional. Everybody, yeah. The most interesting thing about Milo, I think he was originally written to be. Romero says in the commentary track, one thing, but Peter Stormer decided to make him into this Eastern European dickhead. He was supposed to be Italian, I think, originally, and he's very surface characters. There's no real complexity. The only real complexity is in the relationship between Henry and Rosemary, the Leslie Hope character. All right. Everything else is totally 100% surface. Mm -hmm. The budget is so, so, so low on this one. Mm, Which is probably why I would direct DVD. That it looks kind of cheap and cheesy, Mm. and Jason Fleming is not that great an actor and can't really... Even though he's asked to carry off some scenes of very complex emotionality, he doesn't... He's just not up to the yeah. test. So you would not recommend I this? I would not recommend this, but hey, you want to see 
this guy beat people up. Uh, yeah, well, hey, mindless violence never, and, in and, a and, movie never bothered and, me. And blow up Peter Stormare's head with a laser beam. Yeah. And Tom Atkins is in this film, too, by the way. Oh, okay. And that's good, too, because Tom Atkins is a good actor. But um, And I can kind of understand, because this film... L- listen, I'm the guy who sat through Hitter. After I sat yeah, through Hitter, I can sit through anything. <laughs> and I can imagine Romero, after going through this struggle of trying to find a release for this film, eventually accepting it was only going to be on D- direct DVD... I can understand him going like, well, that's it. I'm not going to do anything else. You guys want your fucking zombies? Here's your fucking zombies. zombies. And getting even more frustrated because Land of the Dead, which had some grand ideas to it, uh-huh. was treated like crap by the, the box office. And going, okay, really? It didn't do that well? It didn't do that well. Okay. So they went, okay, so you don't want me to do grand ideas? I'm just going to do this Diary of the Dead shit. Diary of the Dead. I've not seen it yet, but from what I hear from everybody, it's Real lousy. Yeah, I haven't seen it either, but I'm from the same buzz you have, so I'm mm-hmm. trying to wait until I can see it for free at somebody's house, <laughs> and then I'll make right. up my mind for myself. But on the other hand, at least he's still doing his stuff without the interference of a studio, because he's vowed after the debacle with Dimension that he was never going to work with the studio again. Yeah, and George Romero, he was one of the pioneers of what we call today independent film. He really did it. His way when he first started out with Night of the Living Dead and mm-hmm. Day of the Dead, which I believe, I'm not sure about this, we should have did our homework on this, or I should have did mine. I believe that the Day of the Dead was the first movie to be released as well, with no rating at all. Because they wanted to get, no, actually the first one might have been The Last House on the Left. Okay. But it was definitely probably the most successful film. Because they wanted to give it an X rating, and he right. said no. Because, of course, back then, X was only right. made for movies with sex in it. And right. it had no sex in it, it was mm-hmm. just violence. And he said, well, I just released it on... And people couldn't believe that. What do you mean you're going to release it on a rating? He said, I'm going to release it with no rating. He mm-hmm. did, and it was a big yeah. deal, and it made truckloads of money. Because it was it allowed him to do things like have two successful syndicated TV shows. You're right. For a while, and Tales of the Dark Tales Side, of the Dark Side. And Monsters. It allowed him to do a lot of things I guess he probably wouldn't have otherwise done. And as we pointed out at the very beginning of the show, he has not had to resort to, like some directors from his same class, going off and selling his intellectual property to people who don't fucking understand it. So that they can do the cookie-cutter horror film remix. But these people have truckloads of money. And I understand what you say. Mm. And I'm not saying it's not a valid point. But see, me, I tend to be a hard-headed realist about this kind of thing. And mm-hmm. the thing is, you're approaching your 70s. You don't have any health care. You don't have any of that kind of stuff, probably, because you've been right. too busy partying. These guys are really starting to worry about their old age mm-hmm. and how are they going to support themselves. And see, here comes a guy with a check for $25 million. Well, I want to do a remake of Escape from New York. You know it's going to be shit, but what are you going to do? You take the money okay. and you say... God, that never got made, though. No, yeah, no, I heard that. So he got the money. Carpenter yeah. got his money. He got his but money. But didn't have to see the debasement. And the Ferengi first rule of acquisition, once you have their money, never right. give it back. I heard there was a lot of problems with uh, Butler. Gerald Butler. First of all, Carpenter didn't want him. Carpenter actually is a little bit better than Wes Craven. Craven gave away his rights at the beginning of his career, yeah. in many cases. Yeah. Yeah. What I understand about the Last House on the Left remake, it was something that where he said, this film wasn't very good. <laughs> and I think the time is right where I can get somebody to do a better version. A better version, And from right. what I understand, even though there are a number of liberties, this version is really good in and of its own right. Okay. But then you get the fact that like, he gave away his rights to Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street, yeah. Now he has 
no control over what they're doing with it now. Which I'm sure he's kicking himself with to this day. He should have a guy that he hires mm-hmm. just to come to his house and give him one swift kick <laughs> in the ass every morning. Yeah, before he walks out the door, he turns over and the guy leans back, bam! <laughs> just to remind him, matter of fact, pay me, I'll come to your house. Although, right Derek, here. from what I understand, he sold the rights to New Line because he was not going to be able to make the movie otherwise. Would you have rather not have had that film at that time? Maybe he would have had a chance to do Nightmare on Elm Street several years later. Mm. But it might not have been the same film. Yeah, it might not have been the same film. Would you rather have had him say, no, I'm not going to sell my rights and not get the film that we got? It's one way or the other. Would you be willing to accept it? Or maybe not never getting it? No, I'd rather not never have had it at all. Okay. This is the way I look at it. And again, I understand perfectly what you're saying. We're talking about, he made what, the original Nightmare on Elm Street way back when? Yes. In, in 1981, what, 19, I think. 1981. First of all, we don't know what his financial condition was at the time. We don't know mm-hmm. what his situation was. Second of all, I'm sure, matter I want to say this with absolute certainty, I know he did not think that Freddy Krueger was going to blow up right. as big as he did. He did not know this was going to be a franchise that was going to continue to this day. He thought he was making a little cheapy horror right. movie that was going to make a couple of dollars in the theater and then be forgotten. So, of course, he said, okay, yeah, well, he signed away his rights. Would he do it now? Of course he wouldn't. Would anybody mm-hmm. do it now? Of course not. People don't sign away their rights to anything anymore right. because you never know what's going to blow up and be a big thing. I don't know. It's easy for us to sit back and say, oh, yeah, yeah, well, he was an asshole for signing away his rights. But you can't blame the man for making a stupid mistake. Was it a stupid mistake? Yeah, it was a stupid yeah. mistake. But, hey, what are you going to do? I mean, but I agree with what you're saying about Romero. Romero was smart enough to hang on to everything. Right. He didn't sign away well, the rights. He, I enough. think that the fact that he got burned about Night of the Living Dead stuck with him. And also, I think he saw what was happening because... Right after he did that, remember, the Italians are great copycats. Right. Their whole film industry for the next 10 right years after that yeah. was nothing but zombie mm-hmm. movies. I'm sure he saw what was happening over there and he said, this could turn out to be something mm-hmm. one day. Let me sit on these rights and hold on to them. If he suddenly appeared right here before us and we asked him if he regretted anything, other than, of course, maybe not copywriting the original Night of the Living Dead, I think that he'd be pretty happy with his life. Go making monkey shines. Okay. <laughs> Because isn't that why he remade Night of the Living Dead? So he would have yes. a version that was exactly. uh, copyright in his name. Yeah, the one that he could copyright because right. he didn't have the copyrights to that Exactly. That's exactly why he authorized and wrote, I think. Of her. He didn't direct it. but I Yeah, mean, no, that was Tom Savini directed it. Right, but he wrote it, yeah. He consciously did that because he wanted to make sure that he had the rights to a version of it. Because it went into public domain, and like everybody was coming yeah. out with their copies. Well, you so, still can. The original version, you can still find on those. You can download it. on, on uh, It's available on archive.org. Uh, you can, yeah. Or you can go to Best Buy and buy one of those 100 horror films on 10 discs. With 10 discs, yeah. For 10 bucks. And it'll be there, along with Dementia 13 and all those other films. I'm glad you mentioned that, because I'm going to show you something. Uh-oh, okay. And, 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 go ahead and entertain the people. Okay. this out real quick. This is interesting. It's interactivity, folks. No, it cracked me up, because I wanted to show you this, because this is... Now, folks, this is what Tom and I call research for Mm -hmm. our exploitation episode. Look at that. Fifteen movies, urban action cinema, featuring Richard Pryor, Billy Dee Williams, Fred Williamson, Mean We are returning to Planet Fred. Look at the movies they got on the Okay, what we got? Mean Johnny Barrows, Lady Coco, (laughs) The Final Calm Down, Lola Falana. Yep. 
Black Cobra, Black Cobra 2, Black Cobra 3, The Tattoo Connection, The Black Gestapo, <laughs> featuring the guy from Night Court, Night Court. The Black Six, Death Journey, Get Christy Love, which was of course the Pam Greer TV pilot that didn't star Pam Greer. Fifteen movies and guess how much? Uh, what, about ten? Five bucks. <laughs> Black Brigade, The Baron. We are returning to <laughs> Planet Fred real soon. This is what we call research, folks. Yes. On Planet Better in the Dark. Yes. To get us back to our subjects, we went far afield. Oh, yeah, there. we just took a hard right turn into... <laughs> so, of the films that we've discussed today... Which ones do you think people would, should watch? It's kind of hard out of mm-hmm. this whole package because they are such unique and eclectic mm-hmm. films that I think even though neither one of us really have much good to say about the movie, I think that if nobody had ever seen any George Romero movie and wanted to see something outside of his zombie movies, I'd have to give him The Dark Howl first. Uh-huh. Only because it's attached to Stephen King's name, right. and it would probably be more accessible to today's audience. And then after that, then I'd slowly wean them onto like Knight Riders and right. Martin. And uh, yeah, I probably would I, say the crazies. The, the crazies, the crazies would yeah. Be, if they, they wanted to see a George Romero film that wasn't a, a, the crazies first, then maybe one of the later ones, the more mm-hmm. the slicker ones, and then ease them into the really peculiar, the one. Martin, you, you really have to get people prepared for Martin. You right? really do. Because that's really just do. such. They, yeah, that would be like a movie that you really have to say, okay, well, this is this. Yeah, but The Crazies, yeah, The Crazies is a good one. Matter of fact, Scratch the Dark Half, yeah, yeah. I'll give him The Crazies. And i got to admit that this, this new version of The Crazies looks pretty good. I mean, yeah. he's, and he's involved in it, so. So, hey. There's always that. Hey, it's got Rodda Mitchell in it. I love me some Rodda oh, Mitchell. Oh, yeah. Well, the later movies, that's why I said The Dark House, because mm-hmm. most people, if they hear Stephen King's name, too, oh, yeah, well, I want to see that. I want right. to see that. And they'll see that and say, okay, well, what else do you got? Okay, well, here's the crazies. And here's, there we go. Uh, Timothy Oliphant is the male lead. Timothy Oliphant is such a strange actor. Mm-hmm. I've been watching Deadwood right. lately, and he's such a badass. Have you gotten up to the, the, I think it's like a two-parter, which features Kristen Bell. No, I haven't gotten to that point yet. She's, She's on Deadwood? She's not a nice person in this film. She's on Deadwood? Yeah. I did not know that. She shows up for a couple of episodes. It's a role where she's playing off of the fact that she looks so sweet and kind and nice. But she's not. Okay, I'm going to be looking out for that. I think it must be the mustache. Yeah. Because I saw Hitman. Mm-hmm. And he was not convincing in that as a badass at all. But in Deadwood, yeah, I buy it. And he's got a new TV series that's going to be coming on TNT. Where apparently he's going to be playing some type of modern day... Lawman or sheriff or something like that. Yeah, Timothy Alfred, I like him, but it's just that he tries to play a badass and it just doesn't come off as convincing. Well, he wants to do the whole Jason Stratham thing. Yeah, yeah, but that cat looks like he wakes up and chews concrete for breakfast. <laughs> That's yeah, that cat. Now you talk about a badass, you know? It's like he wakes up and it automatically just opens up his window, goes, "You, I'm gonna fuck your ass." Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And he just jumps out the window and just beats him up and comes back out. And you him. run. And even in a movie where he doesn't play a badass, like I just recently yeah. saw The Bank Job, which mm-hmm. is a great movie. He doesn't play a badass, but he's just so convincing. Once you get past the axis, but I love hearing these British guys talk yeah. tough. He said, Oi! Roy, you want some of these? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Are you but... taking the piss? Yeah. I'm going to fuck you up. 
Oh man, I'm gonna fucking kill you. He's a funny I'm guy. Sorry. He's a funny guy, but he's great. You know, he looks like a guy. He wakes up in the morning. He reaches down. There's a bucket full of chunks of carbon. Right. He pops right out <laughs> and he's chewing it while he's walking to the bathroom, just spitting out the gravel. Yeah, spitting out the gravel. And then he goes. Yeah, and, yeah. I'll go, but real cool in my teeth. He pisses gasoline, <laughs> sets the toilet on fire, and then he goes out and kills people for the rest of the day. Jason Statham is the man. <laughs> Serious, bro. He is the man. Oh, uh, who I got killed tonight? I and he's probably the only real legitimate action star we've got in, in the last couple of years. Yeah. yeah, we've had a couple of near misses. Everyone thought that Vin Diesel was going to be Mr. Action Star, but then he had to go and sign with Disney for a while until he went crazy. The Triple X franchise was created for him, but you know he's coming back to that, and he's also coming back to Riddick. Riddick, Riddick yeah. Because he wised up, and more importantly, he looked at his bank statements. Right. And he said, boy, shit, I gotta make some money. <laughs> he was walking around one day, and <laughs> Jason straight up, Oi! Oi! Diesel! Get over here! <laughs> Get your ass over here! <laughs> right! Bap! That's for me to the pacifier! Oh, yeah. Bap! <laughs> here you go. It's gonna be interesting seeing how they bring him back. To the Triple X franchise mm-hmm. when it was clearly stated he was dead. Movie. He was dead. Yeah. <laughs> After Diesel refused to come back, wasn't the whole concept that each film was going to feature a different character? The only character that was going to carry over from movie to movie was Samuel L. Jackson, who was the guy that was going to find these guys and make them the new Triple X. There was going to be a new Triple X in every movie. You Jason Stratham be Triple X. Oi, Jackson! I'm going to beat the freaking profanity out of your mouth. Yeah. Stop! That was the idea. Every movie was going to have a new triple X. I think the one thing people are going to take away from this thing is, watch out where you walk, or Jason Statham's going to kick you in the head. He's going to kick you in the head, yeah. <laughs> If you see Jason Statham coming, if you even see him in a poster, turn and run. Oi, you! Oi! I haven't had my weekly, I haven't beaten somebody up yet tonight. Get over here! Spit gravel in your eye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's that for? For existing. For existing. <laughs> he can even make as silly a movie as Crank. Yes. Crank. Even he can make a silly-ass movie like that good. I enjoy watching him. All right. Here I go. I got to put electricity on my tongue. And now I get to fuck Amy Smart in public. There's such a thing as off the wall and over the yeah. top. It just completely bug fucked. And that was it. And I have no idea how they made a sequel to that thing. <laughs> no, I love the explanation. He got better. He got better. <laughs> he got better. I'm too ordinary to die. When it was explained to me by a couple of people that when you look at the movie as a video game, which right. is what it is, then okay, now it makes sense. Because of course, in a video game, you can keep dying and coming back to life. Do you realize people are going, I thought this episode was about George Romero. <laughs> well, <laughs> see, that's what happens in Better in the Dark. You never know what's going to happen. What's that's gonna, why this what's episode will have special guest star Jason Statham. And you never can tell what's going <laughs> to trigger me and Tom off on this something. And but, the one lesson you should take away from this is watch out for Jason Statham or he'll kick you in the head. Who would win, though? Hey, Jason Romero no, 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 no. Jason Statham? No, no, I don't know if Jason Statham <laughs> would win that one. Jason Statham and Chuck Norris. Oh, Jason Statham. Oh, wait, wait. First of all, which Chuck Norris are we talking about? Are we talking about the Chuck Norris of Lone Wolf McQuaid and... Firewalker and... and Fire, yeah. Are we talking about 70s Chuck Norris or Chuck Norris today? Well, let's say Chuck Norris in the 70s. He kicked Jason Statham's ass, yeah. Well, we know that Chuck Norris got beat by Bruce Lee. 
Everybody got beat by Bruce Lee. <laughs> Bruce Lee Except got... apparently Burt Ward. Bruce Lee got beat by Bruce Lee. <laughs> he looked up and scared his own self in the mirror. He said, whoa. He said, oh, shit. <laughs> scared his own damn self. That's how bad he was. Jason Statham versus Jackie Chan. The Jack- oh, are we talking about comedy Jackie Chan or serious Jackie We're Chan? talking about serious Jackie Chan. Mm. Armor of God Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan wins. Okay. Jet Li versus Jason Statham. Oh, Jet Li. <laughs> oh, yeah, Jet Li. Jet Li versus 70 Chuck Norris. Jet Li. <laughs> Keep coming. I can do this shit all day long. <laughs> I can do this shit all day Jason long. Statham versus Star Trek era William Shatner. Jason Statham. <laughs> I'm taking over this ship. I'm taking over this ship. <laughs> Get over here, Aurora. You bloody git. <laughs> you, the one with 20 years. <laughs> give, uh, me a, give me a beer. Get over here, Kirk, you faux English fag. <laughs> I swear we haven't been drinking, folks. We haven't. It just gets like that sometimes. We've been doing this all day long. We're getting punchy now. You realize that I'm going to put in the parentheses of this episode special guest star Jason Statham. Yeah, Jason Statham. <laughs> Jason Statham versus... Jason, Jason Statham, Vin Diesel, Sam Jason Jackson. Statham versus Knight Rider's era Tom Savini. Ooh, Tom Savini. You think Tom Savini would... I think Tom Savini would give him a headbutt that would crack his forehead wide open. One head, but bam! Have you seen that cat's forehead? Yes. Well, you know what the thing he's is? He's got a forehead like a the thing that, that you could, that about Tom Savini is, of course, he's been to Vietnam. Yeah, that too. Yeah. Been, he took photographs of people's wounds and stuff. I think there's some level, there's something in there that if in the fight got unlocked. It's kind of difficult between them two because from what I understand, both of them are pretty tough at badasses yeah. in real life. They don't just play them in the movies. Jason Statham versus Planet Fred's ruler, Fred Williamson. Oh, Fred Williamson. Because <laughs> it would be in his contract. It would be, it would contract. be in his contract. Then he had to beat Jason Statham. <laughs> Fred Williamson versus Tom Savini. Tom Savini. Because, <laughs> see, Tom Savini don't give a fuck about contracts. <laughs> Just that simple. He don't care. <laughs> you know, what's in the contract? So, if you want to see more of Better in the Dark Night at the Fights... <laughs> How long ago did we wrap this episode up? I don't think we ever did. <laughs> We've been doing a half hour with just riffing. Right, boy, Jason Okay, so I guess we should go right to... Pull yourself together and do the administrative, Tom. So, whether you love us, whether you hate us, whether you want to avoid you this day, they're kicking you in the head! <laughs> there are a number of ways you can get in touch with us. You can send us an email at breath. better in the dark at earth2.net. That's better in the dark at earth-2.net. You can join one of our two message boards. You can either join the earth2.net message board, in which case you just click on the forms on the left-hand side of the earth2.net homepage, and that'll take you directly to the earth2.net forms, and we are down there under the shows category, or you can join the original Better in the Dark message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com, which, of course, is maintained by our good friend Eric Frome. Mm-hmm. You could become our friend on Facebook, and you better, because if not, Jason Stratton going to kick in the head! Tom has his own Facebook, I have mine, and Better in the Dark as a whole, which was right. set up by our good friend Kellen Conley, a.k.a. B-hyphen. Who will be joining us sometime in the near future to discuss... 
the Shaft films with us. Yep, we're going to be doing the Shaft movie. Shaft era, Richard Roundtree versus Jason Stratham. Mm, we're talking about the 70s? We're talking about Shaft era. Shaft era, Richard Roundtree? Right. That's a tough one to call, seriously. Right now, I'm going to say a tie. Shaft era, Richard Roundtree versus Fred Williamson. Oh, Fred Williamson. <laughs> Because being his contract, and Richard Roundtree doesn't have a good enough agent to break the contract. There you go. Okay, <laughs> he doesn't. Unless, of course, he decides to call on Jason Stratham. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> we may have another episode here. There we go. You can also follow our adventures on Live Journal. Right. Derek's is called Derek Ferguson's Notebook, Notebook. and Tom is. Space Monkey, Monkey Mafia. Mafia. And Ella is not no, the she's, web mistress of no, that. No, she's not. Most certainly not. <laughs> I had to fire her after she held a uh, razor to my neck. Which is what most women usually end up doing to Tom anyway, whether they're monkeys or humans. I do not understand why. They do not love me. It makes me very sad. That's it for this episode. Oh, we forgot to also mention, go and visit... The Pulpworks Press yep. website at pulpworkspress.com. That's right. Because you can order lots of goodies written by Derek Ferguson, including three volumes, or are we waiting for the third volume? We're waiting for the third. There are two okay. volumes of Derek Ferguson's movie review notebook. There's Derek Ferguson's movie review notebook, the return of Derek Ferguson's movie review notebook, and the next one is going to be The Bride of Derek Ferguson's movie notebook. You can tell I'm not very imaginative or extremely egotistical when it comes to titling my books. Jason Statham versus Derek Ferguson's movie notebook. Oh, Jason Statham. (laughs) Anyway, also your Dylan book. Dylan and the Legend of the Golden Bell will be out definitely in January. And... Also, we've got How the West Was Weird coming out through them. Yes, and Tom is hard at work editing his anthology. Amazing Alternative Stories, Stories which, which will be out sometime probably late in 2010. Well, depending on well, how's the editing going. I'm reading the stories at this point. Okay. The deadline is still a month away before the writers have to submit their stories, so I'm going to start reading them over this month. Well, keep listening to Better in the Dark, and we will most and certainly let you know. There's also the Super Super Double Secret special project. That ah, yes. That worked Tom, on. That Tom doesn't want to talk about. That is being worked on between Conspiracy Productions, which is, of course, where Better in the Dark comes from, and Pulp Works Press. It's a goodie. It's a very freedom-inducing. It's a goodie. Trust me on this one. So, that's it, I guess, from me, and that's... From me, Derek Ferguson, and he's Thomas DJ. And until next time, when Jason Statham might come up and knock you on the head, <laughs> go see that movie. Go see that movie. Good night. Good night. Attention all shoppers. Attention all shoppers. You've been listening to Better in the Dark, featuring Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to Big William Samurai of The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Drunken Zombie Crew, Scott Gardner of Back to the Bins, Eric Frome, and of course, the members of the Better in the Dark message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com. Better in the Dark is willing to put money up to pay Jason Stratham to kick Wes Craven in the ass once a day. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, and pipe bombs to betterinthedark at earth2.net. That's betterinthedark at earth-2.net. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley, and why not leave a review of us on iTunes? Hey, Maybe you can even visit the Better in the Dark Central site at sites.google.com backslash site backslash Better in the Dark Central site. 
Better in the Dark is a Conspiracy Productions presentation in association with the EarthQ.net community of podcasts. All material copyright, Thomas E.J. and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, remember that a psychotic helper monkey is never a good substitute for, well, you know, anything, actually. Did they plant the idea or was it always in me?